Blog Talk Radio. From Brooklyn, New York, where the PBR is still gross but trendy, it's Blazing Rye Radio. Tonight on the show, dance music legend Crystal Waters and best-selling author of At the Altar in Your Underwear, Alexis Asby, featuring the Blazing Rye panel, plus guest co-host Tamika the Broadway Medic Kid. And now... From the back to the middle and around again, he's going to be there till the end, 100%, Ryan Holmes. Welcome to Blaze and Rye Radio. Great show tonight. Crystal Waters, Alexis Asby. I'm digging it. But first, it's time to do something we always do on the show. It's called the Blaze and Rye panel. I'd like to welcome uh, my guest co-host for the evening, the one and only Broadway medic, Tamika Kidd. Tamika, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? I'm doing fine. And I'd also like to welcome uh, my brother from another mother, Mr. Jonathan Weeks. John Weeks, how are you doing? Good, my friend. Good. Pleasure to be here, sir. All right. So um, it's been a week since uh, the um, the bombings in Boston at the Boston Marathon. Uh, it's been quite a, a hectic week since that initially happened. Um, I'm glad we have you two on because I think that, John, we can talk about uh, the security side and, Tamika, we can talk about the the medical side, and what would you do if you were there? Um, John, I'm going to start with you. Now, when you have a situation like this, it's out in public, You're a big, it's a big crowd, um, there's no walls around, what do you think we can do uh, in the future to prevent this sort of thing from happening? It's a, that's a tough question. Uh, do you sacrifice security or uh, for individual freedoms? Because there's not much you can do. It's a uh, we live in a democracy where everybody's free and we have these events and uh, people come together. Uh, all you have to do is beef up security because in terms of what they did, they, they followed the rules. I think an hour before the attacks, uh, before the bombs went off, they, were, they did another sweep of bombs and they didn't find anything. So um, it's a tough uh, give and take kind of situation. I think they did everything properly and the, the authorities should be commended for the job they did. Um, it depends on how far you want to go in terms of a police state. A lot of people were uh, frightened by what happened uh, immediately. You saw the, the bombings, but it had to happen uh, in terms of uh, right. people's homes and, and whatnot. Um, but there's not much else that could have been done, I think, in that situation. And uh, thank God uh, there were just more and more fatalities and injuries in terms of uh, what happened. They caught the guys right away. They did a good job. And, Tanika, um, uh, you're a, a medic. You're working the marathon. Um, you hear an explosion, you're fine, um, but you see people severely wounded. What is your first reaction? What do you do? Oh, I think we lost her. Um, all right, we'll wait for Tamika to call back in. Um, now, weeks, I um, fell asleep to Letterman on Thursday night, and I woke up 
at 4 a.m. Uh, CBS was on and all hell had broken loose. Uh, John Weeks, what was going through your mind during that time when, when this um, very intense chase uh, began? Oh, man, I was uh, thinking about all the people that uh, possibly could be hurt. I think they were talking about, you know, the possibly alerting the Connecticut police and uh, my home state of Connecticut. I was worried about people there. I was worried about my friends in Boston. And, uh, you know, it's just, it was very scary and frightening. And it just harkened back to the days of uh, 9-11. You know, I was at GW in uh, D.C. when that happened, and you could see the smokes uh, rising from the Pentagon. It was very scary. And it just reminds me of uh, that terrorism is alive and well in the United States of America and uh, – we got to continue to fight on, on, you know, abroad and then domestically. It's scary. And, uh, yeah, and now, it has overarching yeah. uh, concerns with immigration, and I think that's going to feed into the new immigration bill. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see how that happens and how that doles out and how politics plays into this, you know? Right. Along with what you were just saying, the, um, didn't it, you know, we're from the same town, so when on Friday, didn't it feel like it was getting way too close to home and it just got – extremely scary for a little bit there that's right yeah and uh you know i was worried about uh, you know everybody there and the, the elm city man and uh just uh i'm happy that it was it's done and over with and the authorities did the right good job and they found them and uh nobody else was hurt that, that was a great thing so uh now Tamika, what i had posed the question to you uh mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. you got cut off was um right. at the uh at the race Say you were working it as a medic, uh, an explosion mm-hmm. goes off, uh, people are injured, severely wounded. Uh, what is your reaction? What's the first thing you do? Well, I've worked a few marathons and races in L.A., and especially as a medic and EMT, you, know, you don't have any weapons of any sort, but you try and assess the situation and seeing safety, but also you realize that people are in a more vulnerable position than you are. So, you, again, you try and assess the situation as quickly as possible, which you saw a lot of people that aren't medically trained do by taking off some of their race shirts and tying tourniquets. Now, that was an extreme, you know, example of, you know, what people are willing to do for one another. The other thing that happened, which is interesting for this particular situation, is the bombs went off right at the finish line where the last full-on medical station is. You're fully equipped to handle almost anything. And when I say almost, there is no way, unless you are on a literal battlefield of war, that you are ready for the traumatic injuries that, you know, had taken place. But once again, you know, you've been trained, you know how to improvise, and just the human condition of being caring for someone you saw everyone improvising whatever they could do to get the people that were critically wounded, you know, out of harm's way. So it, mm-hmm. it, was, it was an interesting scenario that happened or event that happened, tragic, and also something like that. They were going to do that. They did it in the best place for medical attention because, you know, it's the end of the line. So everyone that is at the medical tent is right there waiting for people to come in through running. Now, they're not expecting to see people with loss of limb or extensive blood loss, but you're yeah. still trained to be able to deal with that. So, I, I um, mean, I'm, I, I, for me, it wouldn't have, there's no question, you know, make sure you're safe because you can't help anybody if you're hurt and right. then, you know, go towards where people are hurt. Right. 
uh, John Beeks, there are uh, people on, on Twitter who were friends of these brothers, um, the, suspe- the suspects, and saying they are being framed. Um, and when I was reading this and, and I, I read through the suspect number two's um, Twitter feed, and it just seemed like uh, he just seemed like a regular kid, like any 19-year-old kid. And one thought that went through my mind is we're very quick to jump to conclusions and, and very quick to exact revenge. But then my other thought is if they were even remotely innocent, then why all the guns and grenades and explosives? Um, weeks. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we, uh, we're we quick to label them monsters and uh, crazy people, and they are. What they do is uh, violence and uh, terrorism, per se, and, and they're bad people. But we have to look into the uh, case-by-case analysis and uh, what they are as individuals. And, uh, you know, they had their two brothers. I think one of them was more extreme than the other. The younger brother, they always say, was following was the uh, was following his older brother. Uh, there was a religious uh, extremism there, and uh, there was a point in time where the older brother just turned to religion because he didn't fit in as American. And uh, I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem individually where people have to come together and, and unite and, and unify. And, and there's always going to be problem people, but we have to, you know, uh, accept people for their differences, but also on a governmental and organizational level, we have to um, unfortunately keep an eye on some people who turn to religious uh, ex- extremism. And you know, we have that. It doesn't have to do just with Islam. It's uh, it's every religion. It crosses all boundaries. Uh, people have to have their limits. And uh, fortunately, the, the FBI and um, the government did the right job. They did everything correctly. It's just uh, you never know when someone's a ticking time bomb. And unfortunately. Uh, uh, it, it, it did happen, and uh, I'm just happy that the the consequences and uh, repercussions weren't as bad as as uh, they could have been. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. much uh, my condolences goes out to the victims, of course, and the injured. So it's just um, yeah. I think we have to analyze this as as a nation and as a government and organizationally and structurally, and continue to keep the fight on because uh, this is not the end of terrorism. This is just a, a reminder that it's alive and well. That's, 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 that's the scary part. Yeah, it's the tragic truth. Uh, and Tamika, the um, the handling of everything by by the authorities, the police, the FBI. Um, what did you think of that? I think they did the best they could do under the circumstances. And the more information that's coming out, I mean, even today, the young man who's still alive is going to be tried as a civilian because of the information that they gathered that he actually is an American citizen, it's somewhat comforting that he won't be crossed over just because we're getting information uh, piecemeal. But as far as all the authorities are concerned, they I mean, it's incredible the fact that they released the pictures. And I heard on one report listening to a Boston radio station that one of the guys was picking up his car a day early and it wasn't fixed. And the mechanic said he looked nervous, but, you know, he gave him the car. Had he seen the pictures a day before, he would have recognized the guy right off the bat. So, I mean, under the circumstances, you know, like, you know, Jonathan said, everyone was doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing protocol-wise and probably far and more beyond that. Uh, A friend of mine Mm -hmm. actually was around the corner uh, in his house that was surrounded. So it was it was um, I think at least security wise they did the best they could do to protect the people of Watertown. 
also mentally trying to be trying to get over that. It's going to be exhausting because it's only been a week. It's only mm-hmm. been a week. Yeah. So it's uh, I think if people can try and take a deep breath for a hot minute and still be vigilant, like we all are here in New York, you know, if you see something, say something. But also if something does take place, you know, make sure that you're okay and if you're able to render help, then, you know, continue to do so. But it's just you you really don't know until you're put in that situation. You know, I, I actually, medic, especially in L.A., I've had to dodge bullets before trying to get to a patient. So, it just it, it just depends on what is taking place. Mm-hmm. Well, we could talk about this all night. We're gonna have to to end it um, in a minute. Uh, John Weeks, do you agree with the decision to try uh, this man as a civilian? Um, what did you think of uh, a couple senators' call to treat him as an enemy combatant? Well, I think the reason why they were saying to treat him as an enemy combatant is because they want to produce his rights. Basically, he want to have an attorney, but I don't agree with that. I think that's a a bad choice. I think what he did was a crime and it's going to be uh, used probably in the justice system. I think he should be tried as a civilian if he's a U.S. citizen. So, I mean, um, I think it's, it's the appropriate form to do justice and, you know, to display it in front of the rest of the world. It's also a, a statement of democracy in our country and the fairness and the equality in our system, you know, even though this guy is a bad guy. Um, we had to treat him fairly just like any other citizen and give him the due rights as he, he as seems fit in this country. And uh, hopefully justice and the truth will come out, and we'll learn more about him and his uh, situation, and we can apply that to future uh, circumstances on a case-by-case basis. I think that's just how this country should be. There should be transparency in, in, in terms of that. I, I understand what the senators are trying to do, but I just don't think that's the American way to do it. And um, it, this, is, uh, this, this is, you know, we're on the world stage here, and we have to – act appropriately as a world actor, uh, and that includes democracy, equality, and freedom of justice for everybody. Well, I think that's a good note to end it on. Of course, uh, all of our thoughts go out to the victims of this terrible tragedy. Uh, John Weeks, Tamika Kidd, thank you guys so much for doing the panel. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure thank and you. honor, sir. All right, John, take care. Take care. Bye. All right. Um, we're going to take a beat now um, and uh, move on to to happier things. Are you ready, Tamika? Always. (laughs) All right. Uh, Our first guest's new single, Oh Mama Hey, reached number one last month on the Billboard Dance Chart. Please welcome to the program, The Divine Crystal Water. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, we we can hear you. How are you? I'm fine. I, I can barely hear you. Oh, can you hear me now? Oh, I can hear you now. <laughs> it, it was all the the applause uh, was drowning drowning me out. Oh, that um, <laughs> So, uh, Crystal, thank you so much for being here. Your song "Oh Mama Hey" went number one on the Billboard Dance Chart in March. Uh, how does that feel to be back on top again? How does it feels? It feels good. You know, you, you try to come back, you got something to say, and thank God somebody wants to hear it. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you ever think about making it into Obama, hey, and it could have been a great campaign well, rally song for the president? I, you know, I, it was it was out kind of towards, I mean, I had written it a while, not a while ago, but, yeah, I had written it towards about January last year. So, yeah, it could have been great for a campaign song after he won. <laughs> um, now, you 
were born in Philadelphia, you come from a musical family, uh, raised in D.C. At 14, Crystal, you were the youngest person to ever be inducted into the American Poetry Society. How did you pull that off? Well, it was more of my mom, you know, I don't think I, <laughs> I think she, I remember she found some of my poems and um, she read them. I know one that she really loved, uh, Beautiful as You, I remember that. And she handed it in, so I really didn't know anything about it until I got the um, I got the award and it got placed in the book. I have no idea what that book is, but um, I don't I don't okay. think I really thought about it until you know until you started started writing music, you know. And I said, well, you know, maybe I am a good writer, so it did come in handy. And so, speaking of writing music, you went to Howard, studied business and computer science, and then you wound up working as a technician for the Washington D.C. Parole Board. How do you go from that to music? I've known a lot of computer technicians and can't picture them as dance music divas. I can tell you very easily. When you work for the government, they hand you this piece of paper that tells you how much you're going to make in the next 12 years, you know, the G4, G5. And I remember seeing that in like 10 years I wasn't going to be making any money. (laughs) <laughs> so I was like, I need money You know, I, I had children And I wanted to buy them bicycles And I just, I went in um, I did some background work Just to make some money, some extra money And once I got in the studio I knew that was it So that's when I put my foot down And said, I'm going to do it Most people leave music to make money You ran towards it to make money Yeah, I, mean, I remember making I sang, what, three songs And I made like $600 Mm-hmm. For me, that was at that time that was a lot of money. So sure. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sure my parents and my friends thought I was crazy. They weren't too happy with it. But, but it you all know, worked what, out. What you want, I stayed at my job like for a year and a half after Gypsy Woman went to number one because I was keeping my health insurance. So I, I really wasn't. I really didn't think it was going to last more than you know a couple of years. But. um at some point, I realized this was it. Yeah. Tamika, I know you're chomping at the bit over there to ask Crystal a question. Well, in light of your uh, beautiful musical history and poetic history, I was uh, looking through a few things where In Living Color, I believe, did a parody of one of your songs. I'm just curious, were you upset about that? Or you were like, hey, that's more, you know, playtime with it? Well, that song that kind of made me infamous at that point. I remember getting phone calls from my attorney and said, you know, the only famous people in charity. I don't think I got it as bad as some of the other people. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm but like, you know, in hindsight, it's not that bad. I think at the time, my family was more hurt than anything because, you know, right. like, I, that's somebody's daughter, you know. Somebody's exactly. Daughter. Well, I, and I was curious about that, too, because, you know, Living Color back in the day was, you know, an up-and-coming or a big show for them to do that, but in the same context, you know, here it is years later. Yeah, Oprah got an apology. I, I think if I make a billion dollars, I might get one, too. I'm holding, I'm holding up. I'm holding up for that. I heard that, girl. All right. All right. All right. Uh, Crystal, I read that you trusted a psychic that helped your music career. Uh, is that true? Well, what happened, I was at the parole board, and I was complaining to my mother, and she was really into spiritual stuff. She said, go see a psychic. So I uh, mean, my friend at the time, it happened to be that weekend, there was one in town at, like, a unity church, and... um I was, we were all excited. I got up to go, and on the way down, we're driving down, and I lost my voice. Like, 
just I really I woke up I was talking fine. So by the time I got to her, my voice was gone, and she said, "Well, it's something you need to do with your voice. If you don't do it, you're not going to be happy." And I was like, "Yeah, right. That was easy to say because I lost my voice, and mm-hmm. I was I was very shy at that time. And I and you know I said, I can't you know I'm thinking she's thinking public speaking or something like that." And I get back to my job, and my friend at the full board, he says, well, I have a cousin that has a studio. He's looking for background singers. He said, he said, I'll go if you go. I said, I'll go if you go, and that kind of thing. So that's when I went and did it, and that's when I knew, you know, you had that feeling that just, oh, I love doing this. i got to do this. And I realized I hung around the studio for a while, and I realized that I had to write my own stuff, and no one else was going to help me but me. So it really kind of turned out to what she said. Did you would you have taken this path had it not been for the psychic? Was that a real turning point, or do you think it would have happened for you? I don't, I don't think if I don't think anyone at the parole board knew that I was into music or that I was really you know wanting to do that. I don't think if that if I didn't tell that person that story at that point in time that it, it may not have happened. Maybe a little bit later down the road, but it's too. I don't believe in coincidence. You know, right. right. Now, Gypsy Woman, you mentioned before, you wrote for somebody else. Explain how that became your song. Um, I wrote that song. Well, I met the Basement Boys at a music conference here in D.C., and I was trying to be Charday at the time. I really wanted to be. I had the pony. You see, if you notice, I had the ponytail and everything. <laughs> and um, so I met the Basement Boys. They were doing dance music. And I was like, oh, they say they love the way I wrote songs. They said, well, can you write some songs for some artists of ours? And I was like, sure. I, you know, they said, just keep your stuff. Can I be myself? And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wrote Gypsy and I wrote Make It Happy for uh, Alternate. But they put the uh, Gypsy Woman on my demo with my Chardet tracks. And then it just got picked up, like, right away. I think, I don't remember what DJ got it, um, Tony Humphreys, maybe? And just started playing it in the clubs from a cassette. So that's... <laughs> That's how it became mine. Wow. Would you say that it was a a pioneering song in that field because it was a dance song but had a socially conscious message to it? I think that was the brains of the Basin Boys to to mix me with that because I was writing at the time. This is the 90s, you know, early 90s when AIDS was just coming in and people, I mean, ambulances would go pick people up and they wouldn't touch them if they thought they had AIDS. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of homelessness and a lot of, you know, there's no humanity going on at the time, so that's, you know, that's what I was writing about. And, you know, for the baseball to allow me to do that was really, you know, I think was genius. Now, I've done that after I got on the record label, Mercury, and I was doing it again, and they wouldn't let me do it because all they wanted was the pop. So, so it's kind of, you know, they tell me, oh, you can't talk about it on the radio. I said, if someone was over my shoulder when I wrote Gypsy Woman, it would have never happened. So mm. I think yeah. it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, so then in 1994, you made a huge return to the mainstream with 100% Pure Love. It remained on the Hot 100 chart for 45 weeks. Now, I'm lucky if we make it to the top of the Internet radio charts for two hours. So tell me about, <laughs> tell me about yeah. that time. Did you expect it to be such a huge hit? No. I mean, well, yeah, we wanted it to be a big hit, but it started off slow, like in certain territories, and then all of a sudden it just it just grew more and more. I don't know what happened. It started off really slow, and it just kept, it just lingered and lingered. And by the end, of, like in February, it started by the end of the year is when it really, really caught on. 
I don't know what would happen. <laughs> I'm just thinking. <laughs> it's all a blur now? Yeah, it's all a blur. So your music has been sampled by many, many people. Which stands out to you as the best use of your music and which stands out as the worst? I think um, the recent remake that uh, um, Alicia Keys did, I don't know if you've heard it, it actually captured the emotion that I was trying to put across about just she changed the words a little bit. Brand new, new mm-hmm. brand new me. I really, she's like the only one that really captured. Everyone else, I think, was just trying to make money off of it. <laughs> um, oh. The worst you'd probably be living color, don't you think? Speaking of that, which is not about living color, your music I've heard more mixed in with overseas DJs like uh, Giles Peterson and Peter Kruder and Joyce Meister. Why do you think your music is. Uh, it's popular here, dance music, because I know that I've danced and sweated the night away dancing to it here. But why do you think uh, maybe the European market might be a little more favorable? Well, the European, when dance music died here, the European market never never died. It, they they were imitating us in the 90s, but by the time 2000 came, they had gotten it down and gotten it better. So I used to right. spend okay. a lot of time overseas, so I was, you know, still popular overseas because, you know, dance music was still popular. And I tell you that Gypsy is remixed at least once or twice a year, and I've and we've had to like kind of put a price on it to stop you know stop diluting it because everybody's kind of like mm-hmm. everybody okay. has a bootleg or a remix, you know. So. And Crystal, what's your take on dance music today? What do you think of the the new DJ slash house slash uh, Skrillex fad that's going on? Well, I can tell you that most of the dance divas are kind of upset that they're taking all the money, that they're getting, mm. <laughs> they're getting all the shows. It's kind of like wiped out a lot of shows for a lot of people. But but I'm not mad at them. They're still pushing the envelope. They're being creative. They're starting to get a little too much on um, the same pattern. But I, I remember at the end of the 90s, it went into the techno thing, and it had lost a lot of its soul, which I didn't care for. But I think a lot of the melody and vocals are coming back now, so I'm really happy about that. So and what do you I think about? Was, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'll say that's when I thought it was time. Maybe I could put my foot back in it a little bit. That they're going to start playing vocals again. Right. And what do you think about the drug culture? That's the like the MDMA culture and ecstasy culture that's now being associated with uh, the DJ dance music. It's all. It's been there since the disco. So it's been there since jazz. <laughs> yeah. I don't. <laughs> Nothing new, huh? Yeah, new drugs. You know, I mean, it's it's in all the clubs. It's just, you know, as 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 you're young and you're trying to find yourself, I think you know you have to make some decisions. Some make good ones, but um, I I can't blame it on the dance community. And I'll tell you that um, I've worked with a lot of different communities, and the dance community is the nicest, most friendliest, most supportive community that you would ever want to be a part of. And I, you know, I would hate to people to think that it's only about drugs because it's not. Sure. Um, and you, Crystal, you appear in many uh, gay pride festivals, parades. How do you feel about the new direction the country is taking in regards to gay marriage? I, about time. <laughs> I just saw <laughs> Betty White on TV. I, I, she said, it's, not, it's none of your business. Somebody wants to marry somebody. Legal age, it's really none of your business. Let it go. It should have been done a long time ago. 
And, uh, you know, but you got to be careful. You want to get married. There's a reason why people get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> <It's really not laughs> if you want to go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> we actually the the next guest coming up is a is a wedding expert, so uh she can probably tell us about uh. marriages and all that kind of thing. I'm gonna ask her how to get over my post traumatic stress from being a groomsman in Atlanta last year though. I know it's me you know. Oh. Um so uh Crystal, your song uh I listen to your song The Great City and it's quite different from uh some other music that I've heard from you. Uh, are you are you getting into more old standard type music now? No, I was always a jazz singer, like with the short day stuff. And if you notice, <laughs> Gypsy's even a jazz melody. And I started as a jazz album. My father was a jazz musician. My family, you know, they always say when well, you're gonna do some real music. <laughs> so I have, so I have to. I'm gonna finish. I'm gonna write a book um, about my aunt Ethel Waters because everyone else has been writing books, making money, and I was like, why don't you write a book? Because I have all the family inside story, and I think mm-hmm. along with it, I'm, well, um, I'm going to do a jazz album, some of her hits and some of my favorites. I mean, I'm, you oh. know, I'm I'm good at it. <laughs> so it's one of those places where you feel really comfortable, so it's right. something I have to do. I'm going to have to do it soon. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to play a game right now. We always play on the show. It's called Hot or Hot Mess, where I give you, Crystal Waters, a list of things. You tell me if they are hot or a hot mess. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Let's open it up. All right. First up on Hot or Hot Mess, Avicii, Hot or Hot Mess, Crystal Waters. He's hot. He's hot. He's hot. He's actually working with uh, Miles Rogers. That's hot. Oh, okay. What about Dead Mouse, Hot or Hot Mess? That's a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> is that, he got that, he gotta be hot with that head on. A little too opinionated for me. <laughs> you think it's just his, his appearance that makes him a hot mess, or the music too? Well, he's a little too opinionated for no good reason. I don't see why he's an expert. I just... Uh-huh. I don't know what about, what it just means. What about uh, Skrillex, hot or hot mess? Skrillex? Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, um, he has to, guys, he has to be hot. He wins a Grammy every time he comes out. He's got the he's got the system down. He knows how to work the system. I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to give him a hot mess just for good measure there. What about I don't know. Justin, <laughs> <laughs> what about Justin Bieber, hot or hot mess? Mm-hmm. That's a hot mess. That's a hot mess about to happen. His mama needs to be that hot mess about to happen. I think it's happening now. I'm tired of these kids staying in the back of the phone. Oh, man. Did you hear what he did you hear what he did in uh, at the Anne Frank Museum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard. Yeah, that's yeah. a hot mess. Face. Can't remember, you know, we call it ticking. He's ticking. He's about to explode. <laughs> tick, tick, boom. What a tick, tick, boom. Great play, Jonathan Larson. What about um, uh, Lindsay Lohan, hot or hot mess? That's a hot mess. See, she already <laughs> boom. She, <laughs> she's done. She's done. She's I, I mean, Sony saves a lot because the press still saves on her, but she's done. 
What about um, last up on Hot or Hot Mess? Uh, newly arrested uh, Reese Witherspoon, Hot or Hot Mess? I think that's hot. I think that's hot. She's got such a goody goody two shoes. For her to actually come out wrong, <laughs> do you know who I am? I would have loved. <laughs> I would have loved that thing. <laughs> that's it. That's it. You know who I am. That's it. Now I like her. Now I actually like her. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> oh, Crystal Water. Like so Damages, the TV show. Wow. Okay. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> what about Damages, Tamika? She was looking like something from Damages, the TV oh. show, the Glenn Close. Oh, Lord. And while her ex-husband was in a season, Brian Felipe. I'm sure she was just like, do you know who I am? I know. And that was it. And that was it. Bobby rolled her eyes and, and drunk, too. That was it. <laughs> we ain't heard the last of that one. Boy. <laughs> Kids are growing up, too? Forget it. So, Crystal, well, you have uh, won a Billboard Award, gotten three American Music Award nominations, three Billboard nominations, one VMA nomination. What is left for you to accomplish that you have not yet done? I think that, I mean, I have I have a lot on my plate coming up, for me personally coming up, but I really, you know, the jazz album I want to finish, and I really want to transfer into writing for other stars, little hot young starlets, and um, just, trans- just focus on writing. I think that would be great for me to see someone else now, you know, I like to write a song for Rihanna, Brittany. They're all good. <laughs> I always imagine what it must be like to be handed a hit and not have to write it. So I want to be that person to hand them a hit, you know, something like that. So you want to work with maybe Rihanna, Britney Spears, anybody else? Not necessarily then, but, you know, some new kids are coming up that really are into dance music. So I think those two, I think they kind of transferred into dance music. I don't know if they were really into it, but I know there's a lot of people who really, you know, love dance music. I would like to write for them. Awesome. Um, now, you can catch uh, Crystal on June 8th at the Des Moines Gay Pride Festival, uh, June 22nd at the Columbus Pride Parade. Follow her on Twitter at CrystalWaters1. Um, any more events that you want to mention before we go? Yeah, you can go to my website, I am Crystal Waters, and all my dates are listed because there's a few more in there. I also have a new song coming out uh, May 28th, and we're having a big record release party in Miami. If anybody's down there at Mansion, should be fun. Awesome. Well, you know, if you ever come to New York, which I'm sure you'll be here soon, you got to hit up mm-hmm. me and Tamika. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please. I'll let you know. I come once a month, so. <laughs> All right, well, this was a blast and an honor. Um, I'm going to play your song, uh, Oh Mama Hey, before we uh, move on to our next guest. Crystal Waters, thank you so much. All right, it was great, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. Bye. All right, so we are going to play Crystal's new hit song, Oh Mama Hey, and we will be right back with Alexis as the...
Hi, this is Crystal Waters, and you can find me online at IamCrystalWaters.com and Facebook, I Am Crystal Waters. Tamika Kid. Yep. How you doing over there? What's up, man? <laughs> I'm good. The ice cream truck finally left, so I'm able to uh, not go out there and be crazy with them just yet. Oh, my God. That ice cream truck sound, I I think that's going to drive me to be institutionalized one day. Yeah. I, 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 think I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with them just yet because they park outside the window, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I've hollered out once already that I'm a good shot, but who knows. But that's okay because I still, you know, I might want some ice cream, but <laughs> I don't, I think you know, it, 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 it lost me. Lips. I lost a, I lost a tennis match because of that. That ice cream truck was driving around the tennis course in Brooklyn once, and I was getting so angry. My opponent thought I was getting angry at him. I'm getting right. angry at the damn, whatever that, that weasel song is. Losing it It's that crazy song I don't know what it is <laughs> I, And I'm afraid that when the kids are out there I'm going to go out there And be so vexed And just scream give me some ice cream That it, it <laughs> loses its points I, I don't know uh, I'll have to you know that the, Do you know that the ice cream truck In my neighborhood Played Helter Skelter now, see, that I can get into, though. <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. The other one, um, that's a, the other one that I was telling you, yeah, So, okay. Tamika, our, our next guest is the author of At the Altar, In Your Underwear, 40 Secrets to an Amazing Wedding and a Better You. It's now available for Kindle, and you can get your print copies at AlexisAsby.com. Please welcome to the show, Alexis Asby. <laughs> Alexis, how are you? Hi, Ryan. Can Hi. You hear me we can hear you. Um, so, do you prefer Alexis or Allie? Uh, I don't know. Do I like you or not? <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't. Here we go. All right, then Alexis. <laughs> so, um, you can call me. You can call me Allie. Allie, and um. Are you, uh, the, the, am I pronouncing the last name correctly? Asby. Okay, so I am. Yes. Awesome. So uh, let's talk about, uh, let's talk a little bit about you. You've done over 3,000 weddings in 20 years. Now, I had 3,000 in 2012 alone, um, but, but that's still quite an accomplishment. Um, explain the title to me of this book, At the Altar in Your Underwear. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said that you did 3,000 in 2012. That's just what it seemed like. <laughs> I was in a wedding every other week. Yes, I got it. You were in a wedding in, in 3,000. Um, <laughs> yeah, I didn't get married 3,000. <laughs> I was going to say, you must be very, very busy. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and very, very broke. <laughs> or crazy. Well, that's true. So the the title of your book, At the Altar in Your Underwear, what, what does that signify? So when I was doing weddings, what I did is um, very often I would deliver a box of bouquets or I would present a beautiful 
room to somebody or an environment. And, you know, very often when people are designing weddings, it's a one-of-a-kind situation. So they didn't know what they were getting. So I would present flowers or a design or a service. And every time I did that, at every wedding, I always felt as though I was standing in my underwear. And it was an incredibly vulnerable process. And even though it was uncomfortable for me and, you know, it is for anybody who's standing in their underwear in front of strangers, it was incredibly um, liberating as well. And it was also um, quite a privilege. Mm-hmm. And so, so that is how the book became At the Altar in Your Underwear. That that vulnerable place. And, and you say that weddings uh, come paired with expectations from friends and other loved ones. What What kind of expectations? Well, you know, your mom has one idea of what she wants you to wear. Your friend has another idea of what she wants you to wear. You have, you may or may not know what you want to wear or how you want to do your event or um, um, how what kind of an event you want to have. So expectations are, um, are very often a big stressful point when planning a wedding. Your groom, for example, may have an idea of how he wants to do the wedding. And everybody comes with their own idea of how you should do it. And what leads people to feel alone when they're about to get married, even while their friends and family are constantly surrounding them? Well, I've met with thousands and thousands of couples and people who are involved in weddings. And the common denominator is that even though they're surrounded and they have all of this input and people that are there, supposed to be there to support them, they're truly feeling emotionally unsupported because they actually either don't know who they are, they don't know what they really want, they're getting confused, they're um, stressed about merging two families, they're often stressed about like what this really means as far as the commitment, um, they're stressed about the expectation, you know, they're worried about the unknown. So that's what I mean by um, they feel alone during the process very often. You know, I, I have a, a wedding I'm attending this coming weekend, and one of the bridesmaids um, just had her, her baby five weeks early, so now she, the, everyone's healthy, but she won't be able to attend the wedding. How would you handle a situation like that? I would just love her and give her as much grace as possible. I mean, shoot, you know, she just brought a life into the world. It's, it's a pretty amazing, you know, amazing deal. And it's new for her, too, I'm sure. And I would just really love her and wrap my arms around her as much as I possibly could and just say, hey, you know, you are you are having a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and you need to be there for that baby right now. And, you know, we're going to be okay. Yeah. We love you. We wish you, you were there. However, completely understand. Absolutely. Uh, and then in your book, you break your book apart into four sections, uh, the engagement planning the big day and the honeymoon, uh, which do you think is the most difficult section for most people getting married? Well, um, I think that all of them come with different challenges. I would mm-hmm. say that the engagement and then the after are the most difficult times. Really? Yeah, Absolutely. Why do you think that is? Because you're just kind of 
learning to behave in this new life together? As far as after the wedding, absolutely. I think that you come down after a lot of hype and a lot of excitement and a lot of distractions. And so all of a sudden you're married. And unless you've given yourself the time to really plan for what you want your life to look like and the time to integrate um, learning how to live with someone or what that means for both of you, uh, I think that that is probably a really difficult transition for people. Yeah, um, I can imagine. And is your book geared more towards brides-to-be than grooms-to-be, or grooms, or is it both? Well, I've heard a lot of men say, I absolutely want to see my soon-to-be wife reading a book a book called At the Altar in Your Underwear. <laughs> I think that um, men really want women to read this book, and the feedback from men as well as women has been that it really brings it back down to what's really important. And it provides some stress relief when you're questioning yourself. It provides support, and it also provides some humor when things get really crazy. So I would say it's for both. I've had okay. a lot of people read it who's not getting, who are not getting married, and they say, you know, surprisingly, they really thought it was going to be a how-to on how to get, you know, how to do a wedding. And they said that it's helped them in so many areas of their life, even even after the, you know, the wedding, um, or even after being married for 20 years. Yeah, I have a question for you. Do you believe that having patience with that person that you're in a relationship with really does affect um, whether you choose to get married? I'm sorry, you said having patience? Yeah, patience in a relationship and then taking that a step further and choosing to get married. Yeah, I would say um, patience is a really critical and important factor in any relationship. Yeah. Uh, For instance, instance, the patience that Tamika lacks with me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sounds like you guys got relationship it. Yeah, Tamika, have you been married? No. no uh, and, unless you consider being married to Cherry Coke, a marriage with cheeseburgers and bacon, no. Baby, no, I feel yet. you on that. I'm all about whipped cream and, and and bacon. Oh, my God. Whipped cream and bacon? <laughs> well, not necessarily at the same time, there. but that just really depends. Uh, Allie, I read in your bio, at its core, at the altar in your underwear, is a relationship book about being brave enough to experience pure, soulful love. Have you seen couples get so consumed in the planning of a wedding that they forget why they're getting married in the first place? Yes, absolutely. I think every single one of us has observed um, people that we care about getting so far away from what, what the end result is or what they're really doing that they cause themselves all kinds of stress and chaos and drama. And have you seen wedding preparations destroy couples? Yes, absolutely. And family. Oh, man. Oh, I'm sorry, who? who? Uh, what what was the worst like what was what was the worst experience you've you've ever had in, in that regard when wedding preparations have destroyed a, a couple? 
Well, I, it wasn't necessarily the couple, but one of the most significant um, meetings I had was with a mother and a bride, her daughter, uh, and they were about two weeks out for planning the wedding. And at the time, I had this really incredible studio with this giant 15-foot granite countertop, and all my staff worked right behind us. And it was great for the clients and people because they could really see what was happening and how the process um, for a wedding came about and designs and, you know, flowers and ribbons and colors and fabric and draping. And that was awesome. However, my whole staff was very often privy to the conversation. And it was also good for them because they got to hear about deliveries and really what clients were wanting and um, what I was communicating with them. Well, we're doing the final preparations for um, for the reception, and the mother had ordered uh, a third tall centerpieces, a third of the low centerpieces, and then a third of a varied cluster kind of an arrangement for the table. And naturally, the centerpieces that were tall were way more expensive. And that was one of the ways she was able to keep her budget in line. Well, come two weeks before the wedding, she comes into the office and she's like, well, you said we can change anything. I said, absolutely, you can change anything. And she said, well, I want you to do all tall. And I want you to do it for the same price as what you're doing the talls and the lows for. Well, naturally, that means my, my costs go up and, and that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. She was starting to be really manipulative and really demanding. And the bride suddenly turns to her in this super surreal way, like almost like, like she has been holding this in for her entire life. And she looks at her mother and she says, I hate you. I hate everything about you. And I don't want anything like you. At that point, I look behind me and my entire staff has like vacated the premises as if, as if a bomb had just gone off. <laughs> um, wow. And, you know, I politely exited the situation. It was, you know, it was devastating. You know, I was watching a huge fallout, and I mean, that, those those words are hurtful, and there have obviously been things that have happened in their life, and this was the final straw for her, and it just happened to be over centerpieces. Jesus, did they wind up making amends by the wedding, or was the mother even at the wedding? The mother was at the wedding, and I don't know if they actually made amends. I don't know what their mm-hmm. process was healing, but I was really... I was really hopeful that um, at some point they were going to actually get some help about, you know, what's transpired in their relationship up until that point. And but out it, of I the... Mean, I can imagine saying that to my mother. Could you imagine saying that to your mother? Absolutely not. Um, that's, that's, yeah, that's All about pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> um, among those 3,000-plus uh, weddings, there must have been a few that, that ended before they started that never came to fruition, were there? Yes, absolutely. And one of the ones, uh, one, one of the ones that, I was all, that I was never surprised about were the brides that were coming in or the women that were coming in planning their wedding before they were even engaged. <laughs> oh, so boy. it wasn't too big of a surprise. But a lot of women do that. A lot of women live in the fantasy of a wedding, and I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. Uh, did you grow up fantasizing about about weddings? Is that what led you into this business? No, I, I didn't. I didn't want to get married when I was younger. In fact, I was like, "Yeah, please don't ask me to marry you. I'm not interested in getting married." Um, I 
I'm, I was interested in design and art and and that process in business, frankly. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of business, in 1990, you started a wedding and event planning business in your garage. Explain how you went from this small company in a garage to Northern California's leading wedding and special event company. Uh, it's a pretty funny story. My parents actually being entrepreneurs themselves, they both encouraged me not to do that. They were terrified. They said, absolutely don't quit your corporate job. What are you thinking? At that time, I wanted to do flowers, and they said, but, 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 but wait, there's a, there's a florist on every corner. How are you going to do just weddings and make it? This is freaking us out. And um, I uh, didn't take their advice, and I really believed in my heart that there was a need for something different, something different that was being offered out of like a stereotypical um, book of flowers or just, you know, pick an arrangement or baby's breath arrangements, those kinds of things and set out to do something very unique and special where I was going to custom make everything with a much different approach to it. And uh, it worked. I went door to door literally selling my flowers. I would cold call on a Sunday afternoon, and um, I would say, hey, I just started out. I really want you know, to give you a presentation on what I can do for you. I have some pictures and some ideas. And so-and-so said you were getting married, so can I come to your house at 8.30 at night you know, on Tuesday after my day job? And mm-hmm. lots of people said yes, and then all of a sudden I had 60 events um, booked for the following year, and I was trying to continue to work my corporate job because I absolutely loved working for this woman who was, who was my mentor. But she said, no, honey, you're going to sink or swim. And then the next year we did 120, and then the next year it was 200. And then I met my future husband, and um, he was really wonderful. He started to what I call buy my chairs. I don't know if you've seen that movie phenomenon, but... I would literally um, drive to the flower market almost every day to get my flowers because I couldn't afford a refrigerator. And mm-hmm. he um, was a contractor, and he said, well, hey, I want to see you more, and you're gone all the time. So if I put a refrigerator in for you, a, you know, like a walk-in refrigerator, does that mean I can see you more? And what that meant is I could do more weddings. <laughs> <laughs> and you did. And I did. And, you know, that cute contractor is now Aquaman, who I'm married to. So it's my own personal superhero. Wow. Uh, and that is amazing. Yeah. Superheroes, talk a little bit about your, your messages of empowerment and, and bold vulnerability. Um, in, regards to, in regards to wedding planning? Yeah, I read that you're all about those two things, empowerment and bold vulnerability. Absolutely. I really believe if something scares you, you got to go after it. And um, the other part of that is that in being vulnerable, it's, like I said earlier, it's an incredibly um, uncomfortable process. And, you know, no one wants to be naked or standing in their underwear. However, when you allow yourself to create or truly be free, like an artist or a musician, you know, you are open for criticism. However, if you don't, there's no there's no opportunity for magic. So I really encourage people to be vulnerable with their hearts and to share how they feel, be vulnerable with who they are and what they're after and go for it. And also to, you know, really chase their dreams in a really aggressive way. You get one life, man. Hit it. Get it. You only get one shot. Yep. Um, So I have a couple uh, questions from, 
uh, my friend Megan, who's a bride-to-be, she says, do I have to invite the priest to the reception if he's not normally my priest? No. Why should she? Is she paying him, or is he doing it as a favor? I don't know. If if she is paying him, then absolutely Mm -hmm. it's a straight business transaction and it's a service. Thank you so much for his services. Send him on his way. If it's a favor and, you know, he's giving some his time, then I might consider inviting him. But if it's just a priest that she's paying to marry them or, like, you know, um, a master of ceremonies, then I think he's happy if he just um, if she, he just got a check. <laughs> um, and what do you say and to friends that... Probably to go to. Right. What do you say to to friends that say you should invite somebody additional? She wants to know. Um, so the friend is actually asking to invite another guest? Yeah, I guess it's like one of the groomsmen is telling the groom to, or asking the room to invite another friend that wasn't going to be invited to the wedding, but they don't really know him that well. Um. Yeah, again, you know, trying to meet other people's expectations. I'd sit down, put your predominant hand on your navel, and, you know, see how that feels. You know, if you if you feel close to that person and this is someone you're going to know for the rest of your life, then, yeah, invite them. But if you're not, I mean, you know, you're not. So don't feel obligated. Did you say put your field. dominant hand on your, on your navel? Yeah, you know, like your right what hand on that? your navel and feel like what your gut is telling you? I see. Um, and the last question from this bride to be, do you think it's appropriate to drink at your own reception? She says no one wants to look sloppy. Well, I wouldn't suggest getting sloppy, but if you can't control your alcohol, then I don't suggest that you do that. If you can control yourself, then absolutely have yourself a cocktail. You're celebrating. <laughs> um. Okay, now uh, one last thing before we go. She may want to do one thing, though. This this is a great time where she can ask for some support from someone she really trusts. Mm -hmm. She can say to one of her bridesmaids or friends, hey, I'm going to have a cocktail. By all means, don't allow me to have three. Uh, Stop me, (laughs) absolutely stop me at two. Okay, that's good. Yeah. No, girlfriend, got my back. Now... Okay, bear with me here. So, Allie, do you have any advice for groomsmen? I, I know you have plenty of advice for brides and grooms, but, but I'm, as I said before, I'm always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And for the most part, it's an honor and it's very fun, but there are those rare times when it's, when it's neither. And let me explain. Uh, last year, uh, my friend and I were called upon to be groomsmen alongside uh, our friend, um, one of our best friends. And uh, the other groomsmen and the best man seemed to be under the impression that money wasn't an object and we could all pack up and have a bachelor party in New Orleans. I vetoed that, but the actual party was still very expensive. We, we went bird watching, too. Like, not, we weren't scoping out honeys. We literally watched birds in a nature <laughs> conservatory because that's what the groom wanted to do. And I had a massive allergy attack there. And then that night, we went to Atlantic City and went to just about every casino on the Strip, and then to a strip club called Babes off the beaten path, where my friend John Weeks was molested by a stripper named Foxy, and that was just a bachelor party. 
and then came the wedding, and the wedding was in 106-degree heat in Roswell, Georgia, and, uh, you know, the, the actual ceremony wasn't very fun. I figured the reception had to be fun. I've never been to a not-fun wedding reception, but let me tell you, the band was two guys playing the slowest songs on acoustic guitar with barely anyone on the dance floor, mostly never anyone on the dance floor. Uh, the wedding cake fell over a fence. I mean, I'm not oh, no. even telling you oh, half of what went wrong. But my question okay, is, so how do how do I get over the post-traumatic stress of being a groomsman? Uh, book yourself a trip alone or, you know, or remember this experience, man. That's, that's traumatic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, or stop, like, like, just really, like, distance yourself. Have some boundaries around around that friendship. That's crazy. Got a lot of really weird stuff going on. That sounds. That like sounds scared. I I think you're still traumatized. I am. I am. Well, yeah. Ryan, I never, I never told you this, but when my big sister got married and I was her bridesmaid, uh, I didn't know it at the time because I was on the rowing team, so I was in super duper good shape. But I unfortunately was sick, and of course, at the, in the midst of fixing her train in the church. I almost uh, regurgitate on it, which was going to be absolutely priceless. So some kind of way I got myself together and made it through the ceremony. But, like, immediately following, you know, I'm like, I I think I got out of there before they did. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> being in a wedding, yeah, that's, that's a little. Plus, I thought I lost the groom's ring, and then I found it on the church bench. So, I, I yeah, I. You know, that's I'm funny. Gonna... You guys need to you need to get a screenplay together and write down write out this whole traumatic both of your traumatic experiences because Terry, you've got an incredible story. Like already working on it. Um, the ring. You went to the wedding from hell. You were completely obligated. You had to go bird watching for crying out loud. And, and, I mean, right? And it's like really? And then the cake like falls over the fence and. And this, this is movie stuff, you guys. That's how you get over your post-traumatic stress. You just write it all out, and you just get it Let on the Let me tell you, the bird watching, so I had this huge allergy attack. I say we're about three miles into this trail, nowhere near, you know, anything. And I said, all right, I, I, I got to go inside because I was having this allergy attack. So then I go in the, the, the building there where this, this woman kept on, like shoving bird DVDs down my throat, and she didn't know how to work the DVD player, and I didn't care about the DVDs. I was just trying to sneeze, and she was like, oh, you, you should watch this one. And, and it, I kept watching these damn movies about birds, and um, I like all I needed at the time was a Claritin, uh, but I couldn't you know, get to any until the, the rest of them got back. Um, and it was just it was absurd, and then you know the wedding was just ridiculous, so... Uh, as you said, I am still traumatized by it. In fact, the friend who he was actually on at the top of the show tonight in the panel, John Weeks, he and I, if one of us texts the other about this particular wedding and bachelor party uh, situation, we'll go on and on for about two hours just about how, like, absolutely absurd it was. Just the, the amount of different modes of transportation we took was insane. So do your friends listen to your show? I really hope this one doesn't. I really hope the groom. I hope the groom does not listen to this segment. Too late. And then you had to go to a strip club called Babes. Was that? Oh yeah, Babes off the beaten path. Not just Babes, but Babes off the beaten path. I mean, this is. 
Yeah. I just think we have like Hangover Three material here. <laughs> we probably do. We probably do. Because I lost my yeah. voice at my sister's wedding and still had to give a toast, so I was shouting through the microphone and then ended up missing the entire reception because someone gave me 800 milligram ibuprofen and I passed out in a banquet room. You know, yeah, on the a, only. On a, the only uh-huh. way you guys can get over your, your control issues and your post-traumatic stress is if you get some sort of redemption. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is At the Altar in Your Underwear. Uh, her website is AllieAsby.com. You can follow her on Twitter uh, at AlexisAsby. Um, and anything else you want to uh, promote before we go? Uh, I'm going to be at Wendy Vineyards and an appearance. And, yeah, just keep in touch with me and, like, let's be friends. And tell me your traumatic Absolutely. stories. Cause if, if you don't make a movie, I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my friend keeps uh, insisting I, wrote a, I write a book called Always a Groomsman. So I think, uh, I, th- I think that's in the works. Groomsmaid. You need to be a groomsmaid. That's, that's always a groomsmaid, <laughs> never, never a groom. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Ali Asby, thank you so much. This was a blast. Absolutely, Ryan. Hey, thank you so much, friend of Ryan's who almost puked. It was nice to talk to you. Yeah, right, Tamika. Yeah, no, thank God I didn't. Yeah, I'm really glad I did not throw up on my big sister's uh, wedding train because I I don't – the fact that I was sick behind it, I still have not been able to live that down. And they're still married, so it wasn't a complete wash. Well, even when those things do happen, and she's always going to love you, I'm sure. Those are yeah. those are the kinds of things that make weddings memorable, and you guys can laugh. <laughs> at but I'm really I glad just, you didn't. I couldn't know. <laughs> Thank you, though. <laughs> All right, peace, love, and rock and roll. Thanks, guys. All right, Allie. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. All right, that was Allie Asby. Um, so, Tamika, before we go, that's this uh, news anchor in. Um, uh, oh, where was it? North Dakota. Uh, North he, Dakota. His, yeah. His first his first moment on the air as an anchor, he says "fucking shit," and he gets uh, he gets the boot. <laughs> okay, here's my analysis. Did you on Did it. you watch it? Did you watch the clip? Yeah, I watched it, and and here's what I think. If it, it, you know, as an actor, if you're on stage and you flub a line or something, you just instinctively spend the rest of that performance being amazing, you know, just doing everything, like, even better than normal. So the fact that this guy had this big mess up and then went on to deliver just a, a god-awful uh, anchoring appearance. I've never seen an anchor as awful as this guy. The fact that he did that just proved to me it seemed like he doesn't really have it in him. So I feel like they wanted to fire him anyway, and this was just this, this was the kicker. What do you think? I think... He was thinking, oh, it's just, I mean, I don't know where the guy went to school. I think he was just thinking, oh, it's North Dakota. Nobody's ever going to see this. Well, check this out. People in North Dakota, they watch the news. Beyond that, what I told you earlier, he looked like he was nervous and just trying to cover, but in his effort to cover his nervousness, it made it worse. But in that situation, when you're live on the air and you are expected to introduce you know, the following news story, like I said, it was a news story about a major ATV crash. I bet at, that, at some point he probably thought he wished he could have been in that crash as opposed to trying to deliver the story because it was, it was just bad. It was really bad. 
Like, I know I've been bad, but not, like, in a national audience like that, to the best of my knowledge, in, in front of the camera, especially since I work behind the camera. But, my goodness, I just, you know what? I bet you, I bet your money he gets picked up by CNN because those folks, <laughs> who knows what's going on over there? And yeah, and yeah, I said it. I absolutely yeah, well, said it because that yeah, was don't the worry about it. CNN. They, they, you know, it's like remember when the whole Obamacare thing? They said that oh, the Supreme Court struck down Obamacare, and then like five minutes later, they're like, no, it didn't, and then. The, on the Daily Show, they had this whole thing where John Stewart kept on playing these different clips of CNN saying that the Supreme Court's yeah, I, credibility was taken away. And then he's like, I'm, right, their credibility. I'm concerned because it looks like something, what we just went through this past week, it looks, yeah. it reads like something that I read, most, most folks read in high school, like uh, 1984 or Brave New mm-hmm. World. For anything like Minority Report, anything that where the news, we all know the news is manufactured, which is why we almost trust each other to try and find out information before you turn on the news Mm -hmm. to some extent. Or depending on what news agency you think is really pulling a full train that evening. Because the guy, like the reporter that we were talking about in North Dakota, he just, I don't, whoever, I don't think he was set up but they just let him go ahead and fall off that cliff. And like I said, he, now we're talking about him. He might get a shot somewhere else. But I bet you one thing, if he does, he will always remember that his microphone can be hot or a.k.a. on. Yeah, you know? and now, I mean, now everybody, you know, every morning show wants him on their radio show, but we'll see if that will actually turn into a, a career or not. Because to me, just he doesn't seem like a, a, a good Former. The other thing is what's odd to me about the firing is if they didn't already want to fire him, then it's weird to me that they would because nothing ever happens in North Dakota. They should be happy that their station is getting so much attention, you know? Like, it seems to me that they would want this kind of attention, so maybe they would want to keep him on, but I think they wanted to get rid of him already. I Yeah, something, something was up, uh, but again... You know, not to put this guy in the same category because, you know, Wolf Blitzer used to be good, but I don't know what happened, you know, over the recent years. Maybe, I I don't know, maybe he got too much of the Kool-Aid. But (laughs) this guy would have been more entertaining. Up there as entertaining as watching Bloomberg, our mayor, speak, try and speak Spanish than what we just watched in the recent week but what took place with some of our media news outlets. It's a bit disturbing, but a lot of us are smart enough to actually try and go to the source, and especially being on the Northeast, you actually may be able to find somebody that can give you actually blow-by-blow detail before it's even on, you know, a a news outlet that's going to try and filter it. I mean, I'm one of the people that if I'm up at 3 in the morning, I might watch the news because it's really not that filtered and you actually get the real news. If you're watching it at 7 in the morning, it's different at that point. Uh, by 10, it's different. So uh, what's new? the thing with this guy, what time was his news being broadcast? Was that an 11 o'clock or like a 5 I don't know. I didn't, even, I didn't even know they had TVs in North Dakota. <laughs> well... I don't know what time now, it was. At the, I, I at the very least, of, we know now. And you saw his co-host; she looked shocked 
but she also <laughs> seems like she had been trained to know that the mic might be hot, and that she's trying to do a good job. Yeah, it's North Dakota, but you know what? She's on the air in North Dakota. It's still one of the 50 states, so, you know, I don't know. And what you were talking about before about uh, CNN and the credibility and everything, I think for the most part we're talking about what happened this past week where they they said that an arrest had been made after the uh, bombing in Boston and then uh, an hour later or so they said no arrest had been made and then you have a, a video of John King who broke that report that it had been made saying like he's reading a text on his Blackberry or whatever, sorry, African American barrier or whatever, and he's like, <laughs> oh, okay, so no... Uh, no arrest was made. If people are saying an arrest was made, they're getting ahead of themselves. And then, like, I mean, he, you know, he's talking about himself there. He was getting ahead of himself. So, uh, yeah, you can't trust those mofos over at Cable News Network no more. Well, and you know who they're affiliated with, but I don't want to say the name because I know you've already got a problem with them. Who? <laughs> Time Warner? Yeah, there you go. You said it. I didn't. <laughs> oh, I'll say it again. Any anybody who doesn't think Time Warner deserve deserve the the huge beating they got on this show last time, they they, they got another thing coming because uh, Time Warner totally deserved that, and um, I, I hope they I hope they heard it, and I, I I'm glad they blocked me from commenting on their stuff because. Uh, oh wow! I didn't know they did all. The, oh no. Yep, on all Facebook right. they blocked me from commenting because all I was doing was going on and relating to other Time Warner uh, customers that were unhappy um, just by saying stuff like, say, they, the Time Warner person was like, we'll schedule an appointment for Tuesday, and then under that comment I would just say, but they're not going to show up, Marcy. They won't show up, so don't even schedule the appointment. I was saying stuff like that, just looking out for my people, and then all of a sudden let me find out I can't comment no more. I can't even like their stuff anymore. <laughs> wow. Um just uh power of the machine. Power of the machine. I know, seriously. Uh we've got to rage. Rage against the machine. Let's uh you, you know what I found out just before we went on the air and I was very saddened by is that uh Richie Havens, the great folk singer and guitarist, yes. passed away today at seventy two of uh an apparent um sudden heart attack. And um this yes, guy. Uh, Sorry, what'd you say? I think he was out here in New Jersey, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah, um, he was out here. I remember when um, my friend Sumatra from uh, Syracuse. She and I, uh, she's one of my best friends ever, and um, she's in Atlanta now. She has a she has a, a beautiful baby boy now, and she's in Atlanta with her husband. Um, but she was in New York for a while, and uh, when she was here. I had like a little Sumatra appreciation night, and I, I knew that she loved Richie Havens, and I love Richie Havens ever since I saw him on that Bob Dylan 30th anniversary concert um, in 92. So I uh, I took her to the Highline Ballroom as a surprise and like gave her the ticket while we were in line, and she was so excited, and, and uh, it was a really awesome night. And then we also like went to when the old Virgin Atlantic, uh, the, the Virgin Megastore was uh, in Union Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was doing he was doing a signing of his CDs, so we went and took a picture with him that you can see on my Facebook, and we met him. And um, uh, he was just uh, an incredible talent, 
Uh, it's very rare you hear a voice with that much grit and soul in it, and that guy could play the guitar faster than anyone I've ever seen. Um, so uh, I just wanted to uh, say rest in peace to, to Richie Havens, and, and he gave me a lot of good memories. Um, were you a fan, Tamika? I'm sure I've heard his songs, but I cannot place them right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But I did see yeah. that right before I uh, got a hold of you. Yeah. And I know that is a well, historical historical he, uh, uh, piece of uh, musical art, an artist that uh, is now, at least he was able to leave his art behind with uh, with our generation. Because I believe he spanned at least three to four generations. He was in the 70s, I believe. Yeah, he was part of the whole Greenwich Village folk movement, you know, with Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and, and everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we'll be back Next week, Monday, 8 p.m. Um, I want to say a, also a rest in peace to my my neighbor, um, Sean Donnelly. Rest in peace, buddy. Um, the, the, the Elm City will miss you. And uh, Tamika, I can think of no better way of ending the show than by saying, "It ain't showbiz, it ain't a fizz." Hit the brakes, Florence. Um, you know, we used to say something on this show that. I'm not, I'm not really allowed to say anymore, but I, I uh, because somebody left the show that used to work on the show and it was his phrase. But every time I say a good night to the show, I hold back all my instincts and I don't say it. So there's always like a pause in my good nights because I don't say this thing. So I'm just going to, for old time's sake, I'm going to say it tonight and then we'll end the show. Um, okay. Somebody owes me a martini. Oh, that feels good. Woo! Somebody owes me a martini. <laughs> I miss that phrase. Thoughts? Tamika? I'm here. <laughs> All right. All right, and if you have a Barbie, what do you do with her? Well, there are a few things you can do, but... In light of our uh, recent life, I'm going to be nice and gentle and say, if you have a Barbie, just don't have her around me because she might end up burnt with stuff. And I just, you know, I just, I, I just don't, I just don't have it in me to be brutal to Barbie this week after last week. I, I I'm going, I'm going to uh, show some discretion here. So, I hear you. It was, it was a I rough understand. week. Yeah. All right, Tamiko. Well. Uh, thank you so much for doing it, and um, have thank a wonderful you. night. Thank you. You too. Absolutely. We'll see you next week. Talk to you soon. Good night, everybody. Bye. Uh-huh.